Vulture, welcome to the September Can You Believe It edition of the Celtic Club Melbourne podcast on all things Melbourne Irish. My name is Claire Murphy and it's lovely to have your company as always. It's a real honour to introduce this month's guest, AFL International Talent Manager Kevin Sheehan, an icon of the AFL administration. Kevin sat down with us to share his experiences recruiting Irish men and women to the AFL, international rules and the role of sport in the Irish-Australian relationship. Yeah, I'm Kevin Sheehan. I'm now currently the AFL's Talent Ambassador, having worked uh, with this great organisation for 35 years. And uh, part of my role is to, to keep the supply of players coming into the AFL. Our talent pathway is, uh, is an exciting one to work in with uh, our challenges to find over 100 players from right around Australia and in a few other parts of the world that are good enough to make it onto AFL lists every year. So it's an exciting spot to work in. Certainly is, Kevin. Welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the Irish experience in the AFL. Yeah, there's a few angles to it, actually. And, uh, gee, I was first introduced to it when I first joined the league way back in 1983. The very next year, we played the first of the international matches against the Irish. A few years earlier, about 20 years earlier than that, we'd had what we'd called a tour by the Galars, an Australian rules football team that went across and played the Gaelic game. They played with a round ball, but it was purely Gaelic footy. And for two years, in 1967-68, a group called the Galahs, taken over by a fellow called Harry Bites, who'll become famous in our game. Uh, And uh, he was the first to do it, to see that there's two games that had been developed uh, over hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, very separately, something like 10,000 miles apart, uh, with similar, uh, similar in the respect of the the basics of the game, uh, the shape of the footy, very different. So he started it all. Then by 84, when I joined the league, we started to have, uh, well, I suppose, reasonably regular exchanges against the Irish. And three test series in 84, in 86, and then in 87. And I started to get involved there, managing the Australian side as the team manager, not the coach. They're different terms in, of course, uh, in Ireland. The, the, the manager, of course, is the coach. But here, uh, I was the organiser of the group, a selector with the group, and I've had an ongoing involvement with, the, uh, I suppose, that connection, the Irish connection, in terms of matches against the Irish through that whole period to the point today where we call it international rules footy and we celebrate the two great games that we have, uh, Australian rules football here in Australia and, of course, Gaelic football in Ireland, both... Uh, uh, wonderful spectacles when played at their best. And we have had, over the years, some spectacular games of uh, the combined, the compromise, the international rules version of it that have thrilled crowds in Ireland and here in Australia as well. So I've been involved with that. And then second to that, and even interwoven with it, I met Jimmy Steins there in one of those tours in 87 when I was the team manager of the Australian side. He was later, of course, to play for Ireland as well against us. Uh, a great promoter of this concept, Um, not just the pathway into AFL for Irish players, but playing for your country, a very proud Irishman and in the finish, a very proud Australian too. And he was the glue that kept it all going through a period of time where he regarded this as the greatest achievement a sportsman can have to represent his his country and his chosen sport. Uh, and that's why he believed that both our youth should do it and our youth today still get that chance to play uh, games against other countries. Our best Australian boys do that. And of course, we have these uh, regular exchanges against uh, uh, the best the Irish can offer. And uh, some of those have been some, something special to watch in, in both countries. Indeed. Um, Jimmy Steins was... <clears throat> Jim Stein was a hero of mine, not just as an Irish Australian and as a young Melbourne Demons fan, but also in terms of the incredible charity work that he did, which really secured his legacy. 
Oh, look, the Reach Foundation, um, well, of course, lives on. That's his legacy away from the game of footy. And that is to give people opportunities and recognise that we're all very, very different. But there's beauty in everyone. I heard him address many, many groups over the years of uh, our talented young footballers who are on the brink of sort of two years away from getting into the AFL. Some of his stories were just brilliant, the way he related to young people, the way he saw the good in people too. He was a, a, an optimistic person, a very stubborn person and a hard-working person. We know all of that, but he could see the bright side of everything. And I think that's the beauty of sports. You've got to come up the next week, have that attitude that uh, even if you're beaten and beaten badly, hey, we'll bounce back the next week. And he had that with every aspect of his life. And I think he was an absolute inspiration and, I've got no doubt. I've been involved in the game now for well, close to 50 years, and he is both the best and the saddest story that probably I've come across. The so best in terms of um, the boy that went across the mark and made a little error, just a, an error in a, in a semi-final that cost a 15-metre penalty, and the coach pointed the finger at him and said, well, gee, you know, uh, in fact, Jim recalled the story many times to our junior groups about being on a, on a train in Paris and a man come up to me a month after this little incident that occurred out of Waverley Park where Jim had made this little error late in the match. And he said, aren't you the man that went across the mark? And Jimmy looked at him and said, yes, I am. And, and Jim said, look, I had my chance there to say, will I walk away or will I get harder, tougher, stronger? I decided to do the latter, get harder, tougher, stronger. Four years later, he won the Brownlow medal. Amazing, amazingly resilient. He set his mind to something and was able to then do it. Uh, and that's the strength of that man. And uh, and such a tragedy it was with, of course, uh, the well, we all know of his battle with his cancer, but didn't he fight? He was just such a, a, a public figure that was just up for the fight and give it his best shot. And um, they're all the great things that we admire about people. People that give it their best shot are optimistic. And even when uh, they have, uh, I suppose, the terror of what he had and his family had in front of them, that he's prepared to give it his best go. And so he inspires many of us uh, still today. He certainly does. My favourite Jim Stein's memory was when I was watching a Melbourne game and suddenly all the players stopped playing and started clapping and looking in one direction, which I'd never seen on the sport in AFL before. And sure enough, Jim Stein's was walking down into the general admission area and everyone else just stood up and clapped and he just wanted to shoo people down. Yeah. I think he was a bit embarrassed by the ten- uh, attention and would have preferred the game to go on, but it really speaks to the man that he was for both the players and the supporters. Oh, Claire, that's why part of what we do is we want to see uh, as part of Jim's league see other Irish boys and now girls that will be given the chance to play in this game to come out to Australia and of course uh, the boys now there's a full-time career available and some will make that choice and uh, we'll be excited by the likes of Zach Tui and Pierce Hanley for a number of years but what about Conor McKenna some of the stuff he's doing it's got it's got Gaelic football all over it hasn't it, it his does. little solo little rather than the Dodgers we show the ball in the hand out to the opponent he goes to kick with a foot and, of course, does the little silo and ducks around the other way. He's done it on a number of occasions this year and left his opponent well, looking pretty silly. Absolutely. Uh, and, so, and then dashes and breaks the line so brilliantly. So he's a product, I suppose, of the Jim Stein's legacy to see Conor McKenna doing what he's doing. And right at this very moment, Claire, we can tell you that there have been uh, three players trialling at clubs. A boy called Barry O'Connor uh, from Wexford who's signed with the Sydney Swans. 
just in the last uh, six weeks or so. We've had Ross McQuillan, he's been out at Essendon, just went home at the weekend. He's been made an offer by uh, the Essendon Football Club, so we'll stay tuned on that one. And he's a boy from Armagh, so we look forward to him. He's got the pace of McKenna too. He's an exciting player. And even coming right up now, we've got a boy called Luke Toey from Sligo that uh, is going to the Gold Coast Suns over the next week or so, and he's going to work out with him and very likely to be offered a contract as well. So it's a little trickle. It's not um, a dozen or more a year, but we think a handful a year are good enough to to make, uh, well, a journey right across the world to actually have a go at the professional game. And, and we know that many of them will return home, like Marty Clark, the Collingwood player, and become a great, uh, I suppose, um, uh, products of uh, the experience they had out here in Australia and, uh, and enhanced the game back in Ireland. Marty coaches at local level over there now and certainly gives a bit of uh, help to some of the boys who are aspiring to come out this way as well. It's certainly an exciting exciting time of year to be seeing uh, more and more people start their AFL careers and see where they might be drafted and where they might get to and it's great to see some more Irish players. Do you think some of the Irish experiences have assisted some of the other international recruits? I know Mason Cox is probably mm. the most prominent one that we can think of. Um, but it is exciting to see a diversity of international players in the game now. Oh, it is. Yeah, Mason Cox is a great story in his own right. A boy that, um, well, he was about to finish college in Oklahoma State and take on a job with ExxonMobil as an engineer uh, and have a secure future. But he, we were part of that combine. And when he rung us back to say he's going to take up the opportunity out here, he said his brother gave him some great advice. He said, you can sit behind a desk for the rest of your life. You're an athlete right at the minute. Use your athletic prowess for the decade that you can through your 20s and into your early 30s. And you can sit back behind the desk as the engineer later on for the rest of your working life. And, and he thought, gee, I'm going to grab that chance and have a go at it. And so that's inspirational um, to other people that uh, that you can do things. You just believe, just be... a a bit like a Jimmy Steins, believe in yourself, put yourself out there. If you have got a strength, play to that strength. And if that's athletic strength or if it's height, um, if you're better academically, pursue that academic dream or even that musical dream. Whatever you're good at is your weapon. We call it now game. It's your point of difference. It's your competitive advantage. Most people have got something special about what they do. It's the thing they're passionate about. So follow your passion. And you never know what bit might be at the end of it. And uh, who could have thought that the likes of Mason Cox, a seven-footer from Oklahoma, or the boy from Dublin in Dublin, Jim, could do what they've done in our game way down under. Yeah, they're incredible stories. Now, um, so we had, we talked about the first being um, Jimmy Science, well, one mm. of their first being yeah. uh, Jimmy Science back in the 80s. Can you talk about how perhaps the recruitment from Ireland or the experience of the Irish AFL players has changed for, to now? I think we've got about a record of 14 Irish players in the mm. game. I'm guessing it's a very different experience these days. Yeah, it's a little bit different in that, you know, we've been open and honest with the GAA and said, look, let us do it ourselves, the AFL itself, rather than through different agents. So uh, over time, there'd been an agent or two or three or four that had popped in and, and grabbed a player and hadn't prepared them properly and then come out to Australia and the agent and then might have even a blue with the club that he come from or the county. So we'd rather just do it more centrally and, and, and be upfront to say that, look, we'll train 10 or 12 a year for, for, for a number of sessions uh, we'll have a combine where we test the best and there might be three or four come a year and we'll try and manage it properly and, and ensure that they uh, are well looked after by the club that chooses them here, um, that their education is looked after whilst they're here and they go back and most do return, not all stay out here, Tig stayed and 
Of course, Jimmy stayed, but many, many will go back home. I think Zach Tui will probably stay. I think he's married to Australian girls. So things like that happen. But many will go home and enhance your own game and, and, and take the learnings back with them. So we'd rather do that um, up front with the uh, the GAA. And uh, that's what we've done the last couple of years. And that's why we've seen the numbers grow. And we think that 14 goes to 17 next year with the signing of the, those three boys. So that's pretty encouraging. And of course, that it's the girls with our AFLW starting. That, yes, so um, exciting. It is so exciting that we've got uh, quite a number of girls that uh, really have made their mark in just the first number of seasons of AFLW. And uh, we're going to probably give a few more a chance too in, in the, the next number of months. We're expanding by another four clubs and we want talent. So I think there's only one place to go if you want some exceptional talent and that would be the Irish girls that... Uh, well, I went to a match about 10 years ago when Daisy Pierce was just 18 and 19 and Australia played Ireland in the, in the women's at Panel Park. The, the boys were playing up the road the next day or two, a couple of days later, and I had a look and the Irish girls thrashed the Australians in international rules that year. Uh, and uh, I had the impression straight away about how talented they are as, uh, as young footballers and, and, and athletes. And got no doubt if they want a four-month holiday out here, they can still go home and play for their county because, you know, our, our football, of course, was played in the, the February sort of March period, that little uh, two-month window there that uh, it might be a bit like 2020 cricket. We're the very best. Go to different parts of the world to pursue their passion and show off their skill and are still able to return back to their roots and, and, and um, play for their clubs or their counties as they wish. And the opportunities are only getting bigger. We're having an expanded competition. There are more and more teams um, in the AFLW. I think all but two of the men's teams are going to be playing in next year's competition. So the options are huge. It is. And and with those four new sides, it's another 100 players that the, the AFLW needs. And so if there are seven or eight or nine Irish girls that want to have a, a wonderful, uh, I suppose, experience, uh, that chance is theirs. And so we'll run some uh, parallel sessions in Ireland to train the girls up. We'll have a combine over there in December. Uh, we'll bring a few girls out for our grand final, let them see our grand final here in Australia this year and work out at our AFLW Combine the next week. It's also run parallel with our Australian talent search called the Combine. So all of that's very, very exciting. And uh, um, we're sure that uh, as happened with the Jim Steins, as Ty Canellis and, and Zach Tuies, they'll enhance our competition with their wonderful skill set. And Dave, I think we're already seeing some legends in the making. Cora Stanton is one name that comes to mind. They're doing incredible work. Yeah, and Cora, well, a role model for it all, uh, such a champion of the game and to see her do what she's done for the Giants, um, even though it's at later in her career, she still had an impact at this level and encouraged already more than a dozen girls to come out. And uh, I know that uh, Sarah Rowe at Collingwood had an impact as well. Uh, there was another girl that was um, Ainsley uh, Considine, I think, was a premiership player at Adelaide. So yeah. there's been a few girls that have had an impact straight away and, and uh, we're sure that, that there's going to be quite a number more in the in the very near future as soon as for next year. Fantastic. And what I think is great to see is the huge community support behind mm. AFLW. Mm. I mean, I was one of the members of my all-girls school first ever AFL team uh, about quite some years ago. And that was kind of uh, some beginnings of some a lot of AFLW competition among schoolgirls. And a lot of those girls that I went to school have actually now play in the league, which is fantastic. But to see the community support behind it, I yeah. think it must be quite a good factor in terms of enticing the Irish girls from one corner of the globe to the yeah. other to take part in this. Uh, it makes us wonder how why we took so long to actually <laughs> gravitate to it, uh, doesn't it? Uh, I, I've got a niece that plays too, and uh, I was watching her play, uh, looking at her mother was away, and so I, I 
took on the role of the timekeeper watching an under-18 game out at Caroline Springs here in Melbourne uh, just a few weeks back. And uh, the, the passion both teams had for the game of football was amazing to watch. It was a muddy, sloppy day. It did not stop those girls from, <laughs> uh, from putting their best foot forward as they, uh, they played their last game for the season. They absolutely loved it, uh, as did the parents, the officials, and all of the people involved in that. And it was just giving me a grassroots feel for, for how the girls um, adapt to the game so quickly, many of them playing it uh, only in their second and third season. In fact, uh, my niece, it was just her first season, uh, and uh, she absolutely loved it and uh, just been drawn into it because uh, I suppose many of her age group are now playing the game, gravitating to it and doing what the boys have done for a long, long time, enjoying the game that is the most popular game in, in certainly the state of Victoria and, of course, in Australia now with the, our growing reach up in New South Wales and Queensland. We've been the predominant sport, of course, in SAWA and Tassie for just like Victoria for forever, if you call ever 150 years, or uh, it now has got a grip right around the nation. And, uh, and yeah, why shouldn't, you know, the boys and girls be able to, to go as far as they can in, in the game they love? Absolutely. It's really exciting to see. Um, now, what I thought was really interesting in terms of the AFL and Irish engagement is that sport is such a huge factor in both yeah. Irish and Australian cultures, histories, passions, that kind of thing. Um, and it's incredible soft power diplomacy, I think, between mm. our two nations. I was wondering what the kind of impression you got going over to Ireland of AFL was from Irish people, both who support sport and mm. who work in the industry. Yeah, I think there's a great affinity between what well, we have over a long period of time got to know many of the, um, the, the Irish officials, the players, the coaches, even fans to a degree, the people that you mix with, and they've got a wonderful respect for for um, for Australian football. They love the game. They do watch the game, as do we have for the Irish game. Um, we've learnt so much from the Irish game, from observing the way it's administered, the way it's played, the the fairness around uh, uh, their acceptance of uh, you know our rules aren't perfect. You know, it's it's so similar to our game that the. Except for the shape of the footy, I think someone's made a tragic mistake maybe 150 years ago when we decided one would go with an oval ball and the other with a round one because I think we've got the product there in the middle somewhere that would have been the world game. But that, that slipped us. We, we made a, an error there. But it's, it's not too late to celebrate what we think are two great games and to learn off each other. And I think that close association we now have between the, uh, the GAA and the AFL is, is as good as it's ever been. It's quite strong and... And let's just say that um, if there is a skirmish out on the pitch, it'll be just a skirmish on the pitch. It won't ruin something that has developed its little spot for now over 50 years since that Galar group went away. 52 years ago, I think it was, we celebrated the 50 years the last time these uh, two countries met. Um, so I think that bond's very, very strong. We'll continue to, to work to make sure that the games played are a celebration of the two great games. Um, and there's uh, the, the respect that we have for each other um, is something we now share before we play each of these internationals. We'll have a dinner days before between the playing groups and although they're adults, they'll be sitting down just like the kids at home, one Irishman next to an Australian, next to an Irishman, and they'll get to understand the backgrounds of each other over, you know, by breaking bread together basically and having a chat and getting the respect right there from the start so that when we get to the match, it'll be played fiercely competitively, tackling by the rules you know, winning the ball against the opponent under the rules of the game that exist at that particular time under international rules. But uh, uh, I think the days of the, uh, you know, the, the wild punches and unsavoury, unsporting behaviour are gone. 
that uh, both of our games are big enough for that now. And I think the leaders, the, the men that have captained and coached our countries in recent years have had that, that overall belief that the game's got to be bigger than any individual that might want to transgress and, and um, be frustrated. He'll, he'll be quickly taken off the pitch by a coach, not sent off by a referee. Absolutely. So we think we've learnt so much uh, about um, how to be uh, humble and, and uh, modest, both winners and losers, and, and the Irish experience is a brilliant thing for our game. Absolutely. They are both great games, but also quite different games. There are differences in terms of some of the rules, and of course mm. one is professional league and one is an amateur yeah. one, which is based around and you're playing yeah. for the glory of your county. Yeah. Could you talk through perhaps some of the challenges that you've worked through in terms of these differences? Yeah, well, that's an interesting one because I think the professionalism word, just put money aside with professionalism. You can be a very professional person but be an amateur. You know, we go back to our days of the great Olympians. Well, would there be anyone more professional than some of our great athletes or Ron Clark, some of our legends of the time that weren't paid back in those days? So I'm going to say that the professional is one about the way you train and prepare. The Gaelic players, they are professional players in the way they train and prepare to play. They're training their three nights a week, their diet, um, uh, their abstinence from anything that might interfere with performance whether it be alcohol or whatever, all those disciplines now at the senior county level uh, are the actions of professional outfits. Uh, they don't get paid, you know, so that's they're not rewarded in that way for their efforts, but their, their attitude and their preparation is super professional and as good as the, the players out this way. We look at that and we compare that when the international rules do come together. I watch the training sessions and the way they prepare, the Irish is as good as the Australians. It's just, I suppose, one as a professional sport. We've been that for 25 years out here. But prior to that, we've been almost, you know, you're getting some pocket money on the side or a bit more than that. In the, the previous 125 years of our game, people had other jobs and they were rewarded for their, their, sporting, um, their sporting talent with a, a part-time salary, if you like. So despite those differences, um, the, the games have been able to come together. And, and we've met on 42 occasions and right at the minute, it's 21 wins to Ireland, 19 to Australia, and two ties. Right so down that, the middle. Right down the middle. So we're, we're two behind, in other words, the Australians. We need to win the next two to draw it level at 21 each with two ties. You can't get it much closer than that. So no. I think despite the fact that one's fully professional in terms of the way they're paid as well as trained, the Irish, on the other hand, is fully professional in their preparation. They're not paid to play. But as one Irishman said to me once, he said... Uh, I'm qualified to be the bank teller, he said, but I'm the bank manager. So he progresses very quickly through his organisation based on who he is as well. So it provides other wonderful opportunities, not too dissimilar to even our amateur competition here in Victoria or across Australia, where many in the past of our great lawyers and our great architects and people that have been devoted to their careers have chosen to take an amateur football pathway through their career, love their footy, but we're never paid to play, but become leaders in our community, but great footballers, but never jumped across to the semi-professional VFL. So uh, no different to that in, in, uh, in my knowledge of our own Australian history. In terms of the AFL, the game is getting even bigger. It's getting, it's getting more expanded. It's facing more criticism, mm. but the skills are getting so much better and there are so many different mm. aspects of the game which are being improved and fine-tuned. What do you think the future of the Irish engagement with AFL is? Well, I, I think it's going to be pretty exciting. Um, you know, it, it, it's funny with our game that people now come back and we talk about state of origin. That was part of our the way we unfolded well before we become a completely national AFL competition. We had um, Western Australia representing 
um, the people of Western Australia in a state match against Victoria before the West Coast Eagles and Fremantle Bockers were born. Uh, but they're looking at having that from time to time. They're debating it right now. But in that debate, they're not going to throw away the chance for the best Australian rules players to play for their country from time to time against the only logical opponent, the only one that would be good enough, and that's Ireland. In the finish, it has to be a compromised game. Um, we, we've now got football played in 40 countries around the world, Australian rules footy. I'm sure that the Gaelic games would be played in a similar number of countries, but you'll never have an opponent anywhere good enough to play against Ireland in, in Gaelic games or Australia in Australian footy. So they're 150 years behind and they play it at a recreational level in all those other countries. So the best way to celebrate it is to compromise it down the middle and play the two countries. And if it's every second year, that's great. If it's every five years, it's still okay. We shouldn't throw it away because we, we should be able to celebrate the greats of the game. I remember reading an article in, a, in the, um, it would have been the Irish Times, it was back when two stars of our game were James Hurd and Nathan Brown. Nathan's now well known in the media here, uh, but he was a wonderful player at Richmond and the Western Bulldogs and James Hurd, of course, a legendary player at, uh, at Essendon. They were the two stars of the Australian side. It was back in the early 2000s of the international rules. A wonderful article written about the, why we play this concept because it's been much debated over this whole period, always debated. But this, uh, this journalist said, look, because we want to see the best athletes and the best footballers in the world showcase their skill. And he said these two, and he picked out those two, um, who were great athletes as well as footballers, um, in Hurd and Brown, could be anything in any game. He said in rugby they would be this, in soccer they'd be that. If they played American football they'd be this. He, he, he rattled off all of the ball sports of the world and talked about the roles that these two outstanding footballers could play in any footy code in the world. And to see them there at Croke Park showcasing their great ability against their very best gave us a great appreciation of how good our own athletes in Ireland are as footballers and the Australian athletes as footballers are as well. And that's the way I look at it. Why shouldn't we see the likes of Nat Fife, um, Paddy Dangerfield, those sorts of boys show off their great abilities against the best the Irish can offer as well. And for us to marvel at, uh, yes, they are stars of the game, stars of the Gaelic game and the Australian game. And that's why we uh, we flock in our numbers to come and watch them play from you know from week to week or month to month as they uh, uh, excite us in uh, in the two games that we do love. And the fact that you have such an even split in terms of Irish and Australian winners in the international are also test to that, I think. It is. It is um, absolutely amazing that over the years, uh, I remember Nathan Buckley, uh, now the coach of Collingwood, kicking an over right at the end of an Adelaide Test to, to tie the game. Well, it was one of the two ties we've had in this uh, this wonderful history. So that's how tight it can be. It often goes right down to the wire. And that's amazing for um, for a set of rules to be thrown together. And I've worked with a guy called Pat Daly from the GAA for the last 30 years. And, and we put our heads down for, well, a fair bit of time for just the two matches every now and again. But we're that determined to try and come up with something that was fair and reasonable for both. And we had to change the language, obviously, uh, the language that was in the rules of both codes to make it more uh, understandable to, for each party. Um, you know, so silly as it is, we, we call the high field, which is called in Irish football, we call that a mark. We also call a spot on the ground a mark. And so it took us a while just to work out, what are we going to call a spot on the ground? Uh, I don't so, even view that challenge. <laughs> uh, so we, we call that the spot and we call that the mark. And so it was just so many things like the tackle, 
the word tackle means a lot different in Gaelic football that doesn't have an official tackle, but it's still a word that's used on the way in which you can challenge a player in the Gaelic game without wrapping your arms around them. So we had to sort of separate all those words and come up with interpretation that both sides could understand uh, to come up with something that was fair and reasonable and uh, and to give the referees or the umpires, whatever we want to call them, some chance of uh, making it a, a consistent call. But always, ex- I suppose, exciting um, when those games are played. Uh, and uh, as we say, if you had a, an event where you get 80,000 people to pack a stadium, uh, as we did at Croke Park on a couple of occasions, they had average crowds of over 33,000 over the 42 matches played, you wouldn't toss it out because there'd been, there's been the odd Donnybrook or the odd skirmish or the odd upset within a match. I think those things can be managed. And, uh, and uh, let's hope that from my point of view as a very proud Irish Australian, we have these games go on forever. Absolutely. Whenever I chat to young Irish or Australian expats who have lived and worked around the world, I'm struck by just how many of them have been able to join um, kind of young professionals, uh, AFL or Gaelic football groups right around the world, in Europe, in America, in Asia. It seems to me that Irish Australian sports have a huge power in kind of galvanising our communities around the world, but also kind of spreading our culture and our history and our, our yeah. social, uh, I, I guess, some, you know, some of the really important things we hold dear around the world and showing who we are. Oh, Claire, I think it's the nature of what the games are. They're team sports where um, you need to actually work with your teammates to actually win the footy. And you need skills like um, you know, being the other set of eyes for your teammate. Uh, you need to shepherd them and back them up and support them. It's not always you that's the ball winner. So it's a wonderful principle to use in any situation, in a, whether it be a workplace or a family. You know, sometimes you're the main man. It's your turn to go. Other times you back up the other one. Um, so they're all life lessons that are, you know, that are learnt out on the, on the pitch, so to speak, through a team sport. Uh, a team sport where it is hard when there's, you know, there's 30 to 40 out on the ground, lots of people out there and you've got to win it. Uh, and you've got to have courage to that too. You've got to run hard. You've got to be quick and strong and brave. All those things are great to things to have ingrained in you through your experience in sport as a, as a young man or a young woman. Uh, makes you a more resilient person overall to, to tackle the other challenges of life as well. And so that's what I suppose the prophets of Australian rules would say and of Gaelic games would say. Um, and our youth that do play it and our adults that do play it are, are far healthier both uh, psychologically and physically for the fact that they have played the game at whatever level they play. Uh, and, and it gives them, obviously, a great passion to watch it then played at the elite level. They've played it at a junior or community level. Um, they appreciate the game and how difficult it can be. And then their pastime on a, on a weekend is to follow their team with a great passion to see it uh, have those glorious wins and those narrow, demoralising defeats uh, as sport can do. But if our world played sport, uh, team games like this, particularly in some troubled parts of the world, would be far better off. I think we'd all agree you've got something to fight over. It's a bag of wind. It's far healthier than some of the things that uh, people around the world do fight over because they've never been introduced to probably Gaelic games or Australian rules. Uh, two great sports that uh, 
have done a, a tremendous amount for community health and well-being and fitness for hundreds of years. Absolutely, and I, what I keep hearing from people is that um, when you're being an expat overseas and uh, you're feeling a little bit homesick, sport is great at alleviating that. It takes you back to your childhood, to your families, to your school groups growing up, and I keep hearing about what a strong um, galvanizing force it is, especially for people's mental health. And both Ireland and Australia have huge populations of young people who do move around the world and travel and work and that kind of thing. So it's great to see the pockets of communities right around the world through sport. Uh, look, we know that from uh, from our people in the USA that uh, they do have weekends during the year where the Australian rules football team will join up with a Gaelic club that might be down the road and they'll have the game of international rules because they've seen it on the telly. And so there's, again, the bonding between, and this is in different parts of America, different cities right across the world um, because of the leadership shown by the AFL and the GAA. It's, it's binding communities again and people are meeting other people that they mightn't have uh, except for the leadership of those organisations uh, found each other as uh, uh, sharing something, another bond together, something uh, pretty special to those who have been born in Red Island or Australia, but now being able to share that in the US and in different parts of Europe as well as a, another a byproduct of what has been a, a fascinating uh, joining together of, uh, of two, two great uh, codes. And we call it, uh, we call both of it the Irish experiment. Well, the experiment has been very, very significant. It's no longer an experiment. It's now a fact, I think, that uh, there's a great synergy between the two countries and the people, and we, we've learnt so much from one another and been inspired by the likes of Jimmy Steins and continue to be inspired by the Conor McKenna uh, types that uh, are now showing their great ability out in, our, uh, out in our playing fields here in Australia. Indeed, Kevin, I think that's a great note to end on. It's been fascinating to hear about your experiences in just sport and international relations, two very difficult fields to master, but it's fascinating to hear how you've brought these together in such an incredible way. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely enjoyed it as a, as a former boy from Limerick many, many <laughs> years ago. Thanks, Claire. If you've been at the top end of Collins Street recently, you may have noticed a large sign with black and white photos of women at the old Treasury Building Museum. That's because a new exhibition called Wayward Women is on now, and it's worth noting there's a question mark in that title. Wayward Women presents the stories of 10 women who lived in Victoria from 1894 to 1904 during the economic depression. Either intentionally or through force of circumstance, they transgressed society's rules in some way. Some prospered, but others paid dearly for their actions at a time when women and men were judged by very different moral standards. I caught up with Director and Chief Researcher Margaret Anderson, to discuss the Irish links of women featured. Margaret, thank you very much for having us today at the Old Treasury Building Museum. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the exhibition Wayward Women and perhaps some Irish heritage of any of the women featured. Certainly, Claire, and it's lovely to have you here and thank you for being interested. Um, the exhibition Wayward Women with, as you say, a question mark at the end um, will be shown at the Old Treasury Building for at least a year and it tells 10 stories about 11 women. So there are nine adult women and two little girls and most of them uh, came before the courts for one reason or another. But there are also several women who, who are there and might have been described as being wayward at the time, but of course we wouldn't consider them wayward now. Of In course. fact, we probably see them as heroines pointing to the future. And one of those women probably did have some Irish heritage. We're not absolutely certain, but we think that Bettina Smythe, who, who was a fascinating woman, she was a widow who lived 
lived in North Melbourne, had uh, a store which began as a grocery shop and she turned it into um, a, a shop dispensing um, general medical supplies and things. But she was a great campaigner for women's health. And she also quietly, um, in brown paper parcels, sold contraceptive devices to women. She was one of the few women in the 1890s who was both a feminist and believed in birth control because many of the women who were campaigning for the suffrage at that time were just so worried about the, the whole association between contraception and morality and were, were so afraid that, that that would detract from their campaign for the suffrage that they actually didn't support her in that um, and so Bettina, who was one of the founders of the first Women's Suffrage Association in Victoria, actually went off and formed another association later on her own, partly because the other women disapproved of her work. Now, she was extraordinary. She had no training as a doctor. She tried, and she actually enrolled at the University of Melbourne to try and do some medical training, but of course it was really expensive. So she couldn't finish, but what she used to do was lecture to women and she used to give lectures in the town halls in North Melbourne and around and she lectured women and young women on the way their bodies worked because she argued that women needed to understand those things and that the first platform for emancipation was actually having some control over reproduction. So in that sense, she was an incredibly modern woman. Now, we think she had Irish heritage. We're not absolutely certain. But the name suggests that perhaps at least her mother was born in Ireland. She herself was born in Victoria. And sadly, she died when she was only in her late 50s. It's a pity. So she never lived to see women's suffrage in Victoria. But she was an immensely well-known woman and, it seems, very well respected. So that's one of our Irish women in Wayward Women. The other one had a um, much more difficult life. She was born in Tasmania. Her mother was definitely Irish, came out as a bounty immigrant um, from County Limerick, and her mother was almost certainly illiterate, we think. Um, she came out in 1860. She was married in 1861, and Emma was born shortly after that in Launceston. Then a bit later, Emma came to Victoria um, and very sadly, um, she was separated from her husband who died, left with a little boy, found it immensely difficult to look after him, and she finished up drowning him in the Yarra. It's a very, very sad story. Um, the life of the little boy sounds as if it was really horrendous. But what it shows is how difficult it was for women who were poor, who were on their own, to support themselves and to support their children. Almost certainly Emma was not a particularly nice woman. She wasn't a very kind mother. Um, she obviously left little Johnny, that was his name, with a whole range of people and didn't bother to go back for him. So when you try and think about what life would have been like for that little boy, it's pretty sad. On the other hand, Emma herself was, was facing extraordinary difficulties. Victoria in the 1890s is in the middle of a, the worst depression probably ever. There's no social security, absolutely no safety net. And she was probably not living what the officials would have called a respectable life. 
So the charities probably wouldn't have helped her. Now, none of that is, is an excuse for doing what she did, which was pretty awful. Um, but it helps us to understand how women could be driven to take desperate acts sometimes. Emma was, in fact, the only woman who was hanged in Victoria for killing her own child. There were other women who were executed, not many, but some. She was the only one who was, who was executed for killing her own child. Now, they're two very, very different stories, aren't they? Very different dimensions of what it was like to be a woman, an Irish woman in Melbourne at the end of the 19th century, but just a little taste, perhaps, of what people can see if they come in to look at the exhibition on wayward women and perhaps ask them to consider, were they wayward? Some of them clearly were. Others maybe we'd think were heroines. Absolutely, that's great food for thought. We're, um, we're doing this interview in the beautiful old Treasury building, which is certainly the most beautiful place I've had the pleasure to conduct an interview. It's quite ironic that this exhibition is being held in the symbol of Australian gold rush wealth, yet none of that wealth seemed to filter down to create those social security nets for the women who were featured. Absolutely not. And the, the people who were in Parliament who were asked repeatedly to create those sorts of social nets repeatedly refused now that changed in the early 20th century and part of one of the things we do do in the exhibition is say that these are very sad stories but actually there were people campaigning all through this period to make life better for women and for men and Victoria actually then established a system of pensions before the Commonwealth did. Um, so there was an awareness that things could be done for people but of course you're absolutely right. Um, it was a very stratified society and there was very little sympathy for people in poverty. The 1890s was far, far worse probably than the 1930s because there was no safety net. Indeed, there are some terribly sad stories there, but also in this exhibition you can see some glimmers of hope for better times to come for the people of Victoria. You can. And there were some people who were amazingly far-sighted and, and were campaigning for all sorts of things that then sometimes took 70, 80 years to be realised. So people like Bettina Smythe is probably 50 years before her time and there were others who were like that too. Indeed, and it's great to see that those are... Uh, celebrations of people who did have those progressive ideas actually get mentioned because so many women can get a bit lost in history and this exhibition actually celebrates a lot of them so well. Thank you. There's one little girl who's who's lost in this exhibition and that is Emma had a, had a daughter who was about seven or eight. Her name was Ella. We can't find any trace of what happened to her. So if any of your listeners happen to know what might have happened to little Ella Williams, we'd love to know. Absolutely. Ella Williams will certainly see if anyone out there might know something about her that we could share. Margaret, that was a fantastic teaser of what's to come in Wayward Women. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. Absolute pleasure, Claire. Wayward Women is on the Old Treasury Building Museum, 20 Spring Street, Melbourne, until June 2020. If you've enjoyed our recent discussion on Irish overseas voting rights, don't miss the latest episode of the Irish Passport podcast. It tackles basically every argument for and against constitutional change to allow all Irish citizens around the world to vote in Irish presidential elections, which will be the subject of a referendum this November. Turning to this month's events, author Des Tobin will launch his latest book, Just a Man Called Fonzie, about his father, soldier, salesman, fireman, theatrical producer and funeral director Fonzie Tobin. 
Meet Des when he leads a Celtic Club History Circle discussion on Wednesday the 11th of September at 7.30pm at the Celtic and Metropolitan, 42 Courtney Street, North Melbourne. No bookings needed or welcome. Finally, the next Melbourne Irish Studies Seminar will take place on Wednesday the 17th of September with Dr Jeanette Mollenhauer presenting Dancing at the Southern Crossroads, the story of Australian Irish dance. This free public seminar starts at 6pm in the Jabiru Room at Newman College, University of Melbourne. And that's all for September. Thanks for listening to the Celtic Club Melbourne podcast. And don't forget to share, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Bye for now. Sláinte.